0: What's up, everyone? And welcome back to the Av Geek Chronicles podcast. I am your host, Colin, the chief Av Geek, aviation maniac, or whatever you want to call me. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Ask the AvGeek Show special edition with two of my very close friends and a guest who was on before. Aaron, thanks for being with us again.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And a new guest, Brandon. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We picked him up on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's uh, he's a, became a good friend of us here in the DFW area, so we're happy to have another guest on. And anytime I'm not the only one talking on the podcast, I'm a happy man. So that's good. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Uh, I think oh. we're going to talk about type ratings. Oh yeah, yeah. type ratings. That's what. Uh, because it it so happens, literally, I think there's like five people in the area, all here for type rating training this year. <laughs> yeah like this week yeah i, think I don't so. know what it is like it's fate i guess And you just come here to dfw hang out with us it's crazy americans so <laughs> uh, but the special thing is is if you guys didn't listen to the podcast where i had aaron on before you all know that aaron is from canada yep. good old Canadian
1: canadian
0: <laughs> uh, and then we got brandon representing the united states um and it's kind of this is going to be kind of cool because we're going to talk about type ratings from two different perspectives we're going to talk about it from the canadian perspective and what you've experienced especially being as a new pilot um, and then from your experience, you know, kind of, uh, what it's like over on the cargo side, uh, cause you're a cargo pilot and we'll let you, uh, introduce yourself here in a second too. Um, but it's kind of going to be nice to bring those two perspectives together. Uh, so I'm going to let both of you guys re well, Aaron reintroduce yourself, but let's start with Brandon. How about you introduce yourself? Tell the audience. Where are you from, what do you do? Yep. My name's Brandon Masso, I'm from uh,
2: Frisco, Texas. Used to be a small town, but no longer is. I don't know. It's a big town. Yeah, now. it's a big town now. Uh, but it's basically here in the Dallas area, so I'm a local boy. And uh, uh, I started flying in, oh gosh, when was it? 2001, I think it was, I was 10 years old. Uh, went through all my certificates and ratings, got, uh, got my instructor certificates. Um, And then I began flying corporate about five, maybe five years ago, four years ago. I did that on a contractual basis in the Gulfstream 100. So I actually hold an SIC type in that, um, and I can go more into that a little bit later once we- So for the people
0: that may not know what S, what is SIC? So I'm sorry, SIC is
2: second in command. Uh, So essentially you're certified to sit second in command, but uh, in the US we have some rules um, that make it such that you don't actually even have to have an SIC type to sit right seat in some aircraft, in some operations. I know that's a weird deal. You know, this
0: camera's really throwing people off. Everybody's looking at the camera now.
1: Like, we should be looking at each other here. Exactly, yeah.
0: Man, throw cool. a camera in here. Yeah, yeah look at that. It's, it's dynamic. Got, me. We got the of the camera. Yeah. <laughs> all right, continue. So,
2: all right, sorry, it's a podcast, not a... Uh, yeah, it's
0: yeah. not a... video <laughs> podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'll ignore your, I'll ignore your camera. Yeah, yeah, and well, I'll just, just I'll look just at five. you through yeah. you two. So... Uh, so anyway, as I was saying, SIC type. We can go more into, I'll go into more. I'll go more into that a little bit later. But um, uh, as far as my history goes, I, I I worked for another 135, so another charter company, uh, flying the Pilatus PC12, and then instructing the Pilatus PC12 for about two years, year and a half, uh, and then I recently, six months ago, got hired flying the 767 um, with
0: an outfit up in the Upper Midwest. But the the cool thing about kind of your background is you didn't. I mean, you didn't start in aviation until pretty much after college, right?
2: Yeah, I got, well, I got serious about it. Um, I, I got my private when I was 17. okay, uh, And I flew for leisure for the next couple of years until I earned enough hours and en- enough people said to me, hey man, you, you really seem like you enjoy teaching people how to, how to fly, you should uh-huh. become an instructor. So I think I was like 22 uh, when I started, started to go down the professional pilot route more yeah. than just doing it for fun on the weekends with your buddies.
0: Let's reintroduce you, Aaron. Let's. Uh, uh, I think. I mean, if people didn't listen to your uh, to your episode on the podcast, I mean, what's your back? I mean, because you. I mean, he's got a good story, but you got an even crazier story. How the heck <laughs> you got to? I mean, literally, yeah. like people, like we'll, we'll get to it here, talking about the type rating thing. Um, but I mean, you're still relatively in your hours, young. Like, so it just makes the story yeah. even crazier. Yeah. So how about just in a in a very like. I don't know synopsis version of your whole story. Let's let's just reintroduce yourself to the audience.
1: Yeah, you bet. So, uh, so I'm Aaron David from the great state of Canada, and uh, I'm down here uh, currently in Dallas um, eating barbecue and learning to pl- fly a new airplane. So, pretty excited about that. Um, yeah, soon
0: enough we're gonna turn you into Texas citizen, and you're just gonna move down yeah, here. That's yeah, right. Nothing
1: nothing wrong with that. That's what I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I guess my my brief background and uh, really quick is I. Uh, kind of I graduated high school and didn't know what to do so I started traveling all over the place bartending and um so I was living in Mexico and then I, I came back to uh, Toronto briefly and I was gonna go, go onwards to Spain and uh, one of my buddies he's a pilot just said hey you want to come flying and I was like yeah sure let's 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 go flying and I uh, went flying with him it was awesome and I didn't go to Spain I ended up uh, learning how to fly and and
0: uh, now I'm working at my job that I'm at so. and you you've held like I mean almost I mean you've what you've worked a, a ski resort you've barred I mean you've tried everything and then you just were like you know what I'm gonna do the flying thing
1: yeah yeah I tried to uh, try a whole bunch of stuff and you know bartending is kind of like a really cool it's really cool job but I mean I feel like this is better for like a long-term career and it's also super fun
0: so and yeah. you used to have really long hair I did you still oh really my god hair. you guys need to go back on his Instagram and see some of those photos now you I'm working weight. on a really long mustache oh god <laughs> <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um Okay, but what I find so—I f- mean, mm. you've, you have—you have made it up through. I mean, you're already to the jet world now, and you—I ha- don't even think you've breached the hour limit that in the U.S. you know the FAA to have a commercial, right?
1: Uh, well, I'm at 287 now. Okay, so, so I, you're, exactly, just I yeah, right. you're just <laughs> yeah. over. Commercial. Yeah. You just
0: over. Could you get a com- really that you, quickly? Yeah, you, in a, well, in you, a jet here you, in the United States, you can
2: get your commercial single at 250. Uh, and then you could go into a commercial multi-add-on after that and theoretically, if someone were to hire you um, with those number of hours, you could sit Sit, right seat. But the problem in the United States tends to be, and again, I I have no comparison for Canada. I'm I'm not gonna profess to know anything about what goes on up there. Um, But in the US, everything's driven not necessarily by the FAA in regulatory issues, it's driven by insurance. So just because you may be legal to do something you know, the insurance is going to say, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, or, or they'll say, sure, but we're going to charge you 12 times what you'd ordinarily pay to have that done. It's it's no different than giving a brand new 16-year-old driver the keys to a Maserati or a Mas Ferrari. Ferrari. Like, yeah. sure, you can do it, but it's going to cost you. Uh, but again, I don't know. In Canada, maybe, maybe there's
1: something or some way that... I actually don't know how, uh, aviation insurance works, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, a weird
1: note about that. And, uh, if you're a 16 years old, you're cheaper to insure on a Ferrari F430 than you are on a Honda Civic what? because we go, we I go based strictly on number of accidents, uh, that's related the way to the number So sure I guess here in the U.S. too, that's that, that yeah.
0: in the car insurance world, that's really, is that like, really the how it is. Is that really
2: the case? Yeah. Oh, well, I was making a poor analogy then in my,
0: in my, <laughs> That's why, like, that's why people complain about car insurance so much is because the average, at least the average American drives a standard car that there's thousands of of them out there, right. and that's why they have to pay such a high insurance right. rate. But if you went out and got like a, I don't know, a Mercedes AMG special whatever, there's only <laughs> like ten of them out there, <laughs> and your insurance rates yeah. are lower. I'm like, are you kidding well, me? You this afford- seems like a backwards, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> backwards thing. This is crazy. Um, so you're down here in DFW yep. for uh, for type training. That's it. What what aircraft are you doing type? type training uh, I'm on? on the Gulfstream 280 now, and this is your second round through type training, right?
1: Yeah, this is my second round. Uh, the first one was down in Florida, troop simulation for the um, King Air 350 type. And uh, now we're in Dallas for the uh, Gulfstream 280 type. So that was down in
0: Tampa then, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah So was down so True, uh, so everybody knows I work at Bell, True's a sister company of ours. Awesome. Oh, sweet. Um, so is Beechcraft. Yeah. Did you like flying the Beechcraft?
1: I love it. Um, I love it. Hopefully I still get to fly it and um, yeah, no, no complaints at all about that plane.
0: Except it's a little slower than the one you're going to fly right now. It's just a tad slower. Than <laughs> Maybe the one just a little less in. smarter, too. It's just
1: a smidgen. All
0: right. So tell, yeah. us, about, uh, tell us about the 767. 7. What's been your experience so far uh, So far with that before we get, we get into kind of, you know, how type trading works?
2: Well, it's my first heavy. Yep. So, um, you know, there's that. That's kind of the cool aspect of it. Um, it is a Boeing. So anyone out there that has experience flying a Boeing will, would sit up there and they would say, oh, well.
0: Are you a Boeing or Airbus guy? I'm definitely a Boeing guy. You're a Boeing guy? Do you ever want to fly an Airbus? Oh, I wouldn't
2: say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, they have, they have a few, uh, and I don't want to get too far into this one for you. This is make your podcast like two hours long, but philosophical differences. Um, and so I have- Well, yeah, it's French and American. I have a little- Right. But I just have a little bit of an affinity toward yeah. <laughs> personal connection to Boeing. Uh, so I, I, you
0: know, obviously that's, I'm biased. And how was the experience on the Pilatus? I mean that's basically where you <clears> kind of cut your teeth
2: yeah it's a it's a single engine turboprop um, it is a fun airplane uh you look at it and you're like you, you don't realize hey, you can put eight people, a bunch of bags and uh, a lot of fuel on that sucker, and it'll still get up into the mid twenties relatively easily mm-hmm. um, The company I flew for we did we were part of what was called the essential air service, so we flew to towns that um, would otherwise have been unserved by the commercial airline industry. Just, and that's
0: a program yeah. formed by the government,
2: right? Correct, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the funds, um, and again, I'm not going to profess to be an expert at it, but it's, the funds are distributed by federal DOT in collusion with the local and state governments um, in order to provide air service to these small towns that are otherwise out of reach. So did that, and that puts you guys at a 135. Operation. yeah so we were, we were 135 but if you uh, looked at us from the outside you almost wouldn't know that you'd almost yeah. think it was a 121. we we had um the same jump seat privileges we had the same security clearance privileges through kcm we um you know uniforms didn't look any different uh, than a normal 121 carrier uh we actually had a co-chair my company had a co-chair with one of the major airlines
0: oh uh, we're yeah cool.
2: so you could actually book with one of the major carriers
0: and and uh fly on us <laughs> so so on the corporate side do you do you have those same type of privileges up in canada or is it kind of because you're on the corporate side you're just a you're just a regular person when you want to fly commercial
1: uh yeah i can't talk um to all uh companies uh corporate companies but um for for the most that are just corporate flight departments or whatever yeah we have no direct connection to the airlines or no code shares, anything like that so
0: so when you, you joined corporate, I mean, cause after you got your commercial, you just wanted to work. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, is it, where do you want to go now? Like, is it still just go down the corporate path or? Oh, well, I
1: want to fly this jet.
0: <laughs> this looks wicked. Yeah. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. And well, then that it flies pretty much itself, right?
1: Yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, after that, I'm, I'm pretty much open to, uh, whatever happens in this industry. So yeah, you'll be flying flying
0: taxis at some point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Aerial Uber driver. Know. Yeah, Aerial <laughs> <Airbnb>. Uber <laughs> driver. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah it, it, I mean, it's crazy, right? Like, what do you, okay, so being a cargo pilot, I mean, yep. you know, what do you think about companies like Amazon trying to, trying to start, you know, their own stuff, moving things through the air? Well, I mean, this is
2: America, right? So everyone, it's kind of, the world is kind of yours for the taking. Yeah. So, uh, I'll say it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I don't, I mean, as with anything new, um, or I shouldn't say anything new, I should say when a a company that is relatively new is getting into a realm that they may not have had as much experience uh, in in the past, um, there's gonna be a lot of head work, there's gonna be a lot of hurdles for them, um, but you're not, or they, I guess, would not be, if you're using Amazon as an example, uh, they would not be in reinventing the wheel. Yeah. it's you know it's just a matter of jumping through the through the regulatory and uh, other hoops. So
0: well, and the FA is super slow about right changing the regulations. Of Anyways, and I mean, except for like Part One Hundred Seven type stuff, I mean, there's really no there's no drone regulations out there. I mean, there's nothing. Right. It's uh, it'll be interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of little um, people always ask me these sorts of questions about air taxi stuff and and drone stuff, and I say, well, you know. For one, I, I, I'm not really a drone guy. I yeah. mean, I've used them, but I am not, I don't use them on a daily basis or anything. Um, but there's a lot of things, you know, when you're not in this industry, when you don't do this for work, you, there's a lot of things, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. I guess is a good way to put it. Um, there's just so many little subtle intricacies that can cause big problems.
0: Well, you and let's be, like, let's be honest, right? Like, we're really far away. From some type of aircraft moving transport, you know, cargo transport from Dallas to South America. Right. I mean, like I don't even think. I mean, you can't even
2: pilotless, it. like on its own. Oh yeah, like autonomous yeah.
0: vehicles. Like yeah. we're so far away. I mean, you can only get your Tesla four hundred miles or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, let's be <laughs> on the be, road. Let's yeah. be real here. All right, let's jump into actually why we're here, why we got up early this morning to talk, um, <clears throat> because your sim. You uh, your sim training <laughs> kind of eating up our night, but uh, no, I'm, ju- I'm just kidding. I'm playing. Um, we're here to talk about typewriting. It's something I'd love to learn more about. I mean, you guys are both kind of experienced in uh, in different areas. Um, you've done two typewritings, three. Y- yeah, this is my
2: uh, yeah. I've done two. This I've done, now done two typewriting courses. Yeah. but It's a total of four
0: types. Okay. That it gives you. And then so. you. This is your second. Yeah, second it's gonna be go my around. second type. Okay. Um, let's start with the, the the Canadian. Let's start with kind of what is your experience with, with type ratings? Um, like from the get go, from your first one, how did the first one go compared to the second one? And is there different rules around, you know, transport Canada type things versus FAA, or is it kind of all the same?
1: Um, all right. Yeah. So, so basically, um, we're doing our type rating down in, in the States. But uh, we're still under Canadian regulations. So when we do our check ride, we're not going to be doing the FAA ride. We'll be doing a Transport Canada ride. And uh, therefore, the Transport Canada check examiner has to come down for um, for the ride. And it's just slightly different than the FAA guys. But it's more or less the same deal. Um, kind of one of the hardest parts about it is before you actually get the um, authorization to come down here, we have to go through the, uh, what is it, the alien flight <laughs> training program <laughs> oh, or really? something. Oh, yeah. And, what's, so so what's that entail? So it's... First, you gotta you know put in all your your details, your passport or whatever get uh, get that accepted by the uh, the U.S. government, which works when the U.S. government is open, and uh, <laughs> that doesn't work as well I, when it's well,
0: not. I don't even know if they work when they're open. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, let's, let's be real here. Yeah. Right,
1: so uh, so anyways, first they acknowledge you, and then you uh, you have to go and get um, fingerprints taken, and they have to be taken by a uh, I forgot what their word for this was, but basically by an, a, an authorized American in Canada, and there is exactly two of them. In, uh, in in all of Canada, two so, of them. Yeah, there's two of them. So um, and they just
0: travel around taking people's
1: fingerprints. No, you you got to travel to them. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: want to do that job. Yeah, <laughs> that's it.
1: yeah no kidding. Yeah, so you go to their office
0: for their. Uh, Seriously, so where is there? Like, what uh, what province is it?
1: Uh it, it was outside of Toronto in a place okay. called Scarborough, which I guess kind of is Toronto, yeah. but. Um, Really, it's in the middle of the nowhere. It's just, uh, it's like a, like an Asian food market, I guess. And then, <laughs> like,
0: I'm, I'm not even joking. You're that like, it's an Asian food so market. so sketchy. And on,
1: like, the fourth floor, you go up, and it's like the, like the, the guy's office. I mean, it's it's actually there. And there's, like, you know, a whole bunch of pilots all standing there, you know,
0: waiting to get their fingerprints taken, but... Everyone, everyone's literally in the same boat, just... Oh, yeah, everyone who's who's doing their training in the States has to do the exact same thing. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right, so... so you. You did that, and then you're like basically. Did you have to do that for both type ratings then? Yeah, I did. I so did. they don't once once you do it once they they don't just keep it and accept it. You have to keep going back every time you want to come down and train.
1: Well, this time they uh, they accepted my old um, my old fingerprints, but I still had to go through the whole process. Yeah, again with the exception of uh, the fingerprints. And so It takes two, three, four weeks. Depending.
0: And so you get down. I mean, it's a kind of a crazy story how you actually got the opportunity to do it. But you basically, I mean, how. How quick was your turnaround from them? You know, come back saying, "Hey, you want to go? Like, you want to go to type school?" Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean you were just telling us like uh, only a couple days, huh? Yeah, so, I mean, basically, I guess the opportunity came up in my company,
1: and uh, the options for uh, for the the simulator was either six days or in September. And they're like, "Do you want it?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
1: let's yeah, do I'll it." away <laughs> for a couple weeks here, here we in go. six days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, okay, so your first type rating in, was in the King Air down in Florida. Yeah. How was that a whole process? How long did it take? Uh, what was it like? You know, what was, I don't know, give the audience an understanding of what is a type rating schedule?
1: Yeah, maybe. absolutely. So um, so that down there is about three and a half weeks, kind of similar to, to the one I have here. Uh, the first, I, like eight to 10 days, are going to be ground school, and uh, that's covering all your systems of your aircraft, your limitations, uh, really any questions that you know, you're going to ask the, um, the instructor about it. And then from that point, you're going to be moving into your um, simulator sessions. And that's uh, basically the first session is, you know, familiarizing yourself with the aircraft, doing some, some, you you might get off the ground, you might not. And then it just progressively gets harder and harder. So then you start doing your air work and then by simulator three and four, it just, you know, every time you go into that simulator, the plane's going to be broken continually. And it's just, it's just dealing with emergencies continually.
0: And I mean, maybe, you know, some of the listeners don't understand. And I, I mean, you guys can both chime in on this. But, I mean, the reason why you don't get type rated in, like, a physical aircraft is because you just flat out can't do everything. And it's just, way, A, it's way more expensive to do it that way. I but think that you, may be the biggest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, go through, so, so far, you know, in both trainings, I mean, how much do they fail on you, you know, throughout the throughout the sim process?
1: Oh, I mean, it's, uh, you have your required fails and, you know, the, um, the common ones are like, you know, engine failure right at V1 or uh, generator failures, really all the all the things that, that make it a bad day in the air,
0: and uh, you just go through all of those scenarios. But you, but, you said something while we were sitting around uh, while you were eating breakfast, and you said, well, uh, you know, it could be a really bad day, but it's still a good day in this aircraft because of all its capabilities. <laughs> yeah, that's the <laughs> that's, that's the Gulf
1: stream. I mean, yesterday, what did we have? We had an engine failure, a dual-gen failure, and like ailerons weren't working. So <laughs> <laughs> like, every, everything, everything failed, but there's just so much redundancy, um, in that aircraft that, I mean, even, even a terrible day in the, in the air is still, still okay. You can still make it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just really good to get that exposure to uh, a potential problem.
0: So for your type rating, well, mm-hmm. I mean, what was when you did your first one, what was it like? What was the process? you know, was it pretty much the same or?
2: Well, so my first one was, like I said, it was an SIC type. So we did, or I did all the training, uh, other than the check ride. And the reason for that was because, um, in a sim or the real, thing. in the sim, in the sim. in the sim, yeah. Uh, you can actually get an SIC type without having gone through the formal training and okay. sit right seat in a part 91 operation and Got basically be the gear swinger. Um, but <laughs> you, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know anything about yeah. the aircraft itself having not done training. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to do that. I, I got a job actually at flight safety um, a while back. It was a number of how many years ago it was. Um, and they hired me to sit right seat to be the quote unquote co-pilot for single clients that were coming through for their recurrence or, or whatever tra- kind of training they were doing. Um, so it was really good good for me in the sense that as a first type, I did more V1 cuts than probably all those guys combined because yeah. I was there day in and day out <laughs> doing V1 cuts. Mm-hmm. And you, you got to the point where you're sitting there and it's the same approaches and the same, you know, maneuvers. And you'll kind of look over at them and be like, hey, man, uh, you want your flaps up or yeah. stuff, <laughs> stuff that, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed yeah. and stressed out. But, you know, for one, it's not your check ride, And two, you're sitting there having done it a million times and you're like, oh, well, yeah, you ready or you kind of just chill. Um so that was my first experience, my first type.
0: Do you think that um, was a good experience to start off with, you know, yeah. going through all that, getting all that training and just kind of understanding like how how much work, you know, you yeah. have to do as a pilot?
2: Oh yeah. Uh, and it also showed me the differences between, you know, like the US, I, I sat for Canadian check rides, I sat for EASA, uh, guys from uh, Austria and Germany mm-hmm. come over. Uh, anyone that, that had a, a Gulfstream 100, I'd sit there in the right seat for them if they needed a second guy. Um, but i think as a first type yeah it was really good i had at that up to that point i had no minimal multi-engine experience and i had uh, no jet experience um and uh, i can't think of a better way to have done that to be honest with you so when you were <laughs> so when
0: you got hired on by them and you were flying i mean was there the opportunity to log time doing because those are level d sims so
2: yeah so legally speaking you are correct um i could And I did a little bit, quote-unquote, log the time. Yeah. Um, But I am very clear in my own logbook for any future um, employer or anyone else that just may inquire that that is simulator time. It is not time in the real aircraft because I will tell you and anyone else, you know, for anyone listening, if you try to log level D SIM time, while it may be quote unquote legal per the FAA, at least um, you're going to be laughed out of an interview. If you try to go in there and say, Oh, I've got 500 hours of Gulfstream X, Y, or Z or citation, whatever time um, because it was all on a SIM that that that's fine, but they want
0: real airplane. Yeah. You know, so, so then you jumped it. So, I mean, assuming type training going from something like a Pilatus to a 767 was quite different.
2: So the, the Pilatus actually, just to clarify, Pilatus in the United States, again, this is per FAA rules, it's everything I'm going to speak to today, uh, is not a type typed aircraft. Okay. Uh, because uh, in order for a type to be required in the U.S., as everyone might know, it's, you know, over 12,500 pounds, yeah. right? Or it's got to be turbojet, right? So turboprops that are under that don't, don't fall. Um, but the Pilatus... It was kind of weird for me because I went from flying. I did the Gulfstream sim stuff. Then, I, like I said, I contracted out and we did trips to, like, Mexico and Boston. Um, so I did that for a while, kind of sporadically. Uh, and then I went to the Pilatus. So it was kind of a, a fast to a slower, but then back to the 7.67. Yeah. So it was a, a weird transition for me, I think.
0: So w- jumping to or, you know, going into a seven, what, like 7.67, seven, how long was the training? Uh, we... So I started on the 28th of September.
2: I think we finished ground school um, right around Halloween, around the end of October. <coughs> and then um, we started our sim sessions uh, the end of the first week in, uh, oh gosh, when was it? September, October. I want to say beginning of November. Oh, wow. Yeah, in Denver. So that was fairly long. Yeah. And then, and then that all went all the way through essentially the beginning of December. Oh, wow. So Jeez.
1: that was another
0: month of sims. So a little longer than...
1: Yeah, it it's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: so from start to start to finish, how long will the the Gulfstream training be?
1: Uh, so the Gulfstream training is going to be um, from February 4th to February 28th.
0: Oh, that's so. not too bad at all then. So just a little, what, a couple mm-hmm. weeks then? Yeah. yeah, about three and a so, half weeks. So when you started flying, did you think you'd be this fast, you'd get to a an airplane like the Gulfstream?
1: No, absolutely not. No, I was... Uh, I had no idea, I had no idea, no expectations. Um, I was open to whatever came my way, and I'm just very fortunate that uh, the company that called me called me.
0: So going through your, your type, what has, I mean, you're just jumping into Sims now, so what has been kind of one of the most interesting things about jumping from an aircraft like the King Air to uh, the Gulfstream? What has been something that's been in, you know interesting, cool, yeah. maybe a little bit whoa, I didn't expect that? Like, I mean, what have been some of those things?
1: So, um, so for me, uh, the Gulfstream's got a really, I guess, clean wing and uh, a lot of power behind it. I'm just, I'm just not used to it. So, so something I'm really struggling with, but something I also really enjoy is just, just the pure like energy management aspect of this aircraft. I mean, it will, it will take off uh, in like 2,500 feet and then it just, it just continues to accelerate. You'll pitch up like 17 degrees. You can pitch up 25 degrees and it just keeps on accelerating. and. You know, then you go switch to like two fifty knots. You're still accelerating. You're climbing like five thousand feet per minute. And it's just that kind of thing blows my mind. And then it's the same on the way down. Um, when you're configuring for an approach, if you don't have your flaps out or your, your gear down in time, you're just not going to slow down. It's just it just won't happen. And it's, yeah. it's something really cool to to kind of play around with
0: and experience. So a little uh, yeah. a little faster than the uh, the King Air. Yeah, I got, I got just a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, you, so do you have any, do you have any experience in other other jets then like maybe just as like a passenger in the corporate world or has it just Um, been King Air and yeah it's it's
1: been the uh the King Air and the um 280 um I did get the chance to go in uh an Embraer class D sim and a uh, 737 max class D sim and so that was cool um but I mean I wasn't there for a typewriter I actually didn't even have my pilot's license at that time so Mm -hmm. that was just my friend you know because I guess he had a a connection to that and it was a yeah it was a fun time
0: so what's it like Flying the seven six seven, I mean, it's a it's a legacy aircraft. I mean, it's been. I mean, when it came out, I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, What's the experience like flying that aircraft? As you might
2: find with much of the commercial world, everything everything is automated. Yeah, Um, we spend very little time actually flying the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but uh, (laughs) you know, when you're flying, uh, one of the routes we do a lot is we go Baltimore to Sacramento or we'll fly Los Angeles to San Jose, Costa Rica. Um, and much of it is done in the middle of the night because it's yeah. cargo, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, but I don't think anyone wants to hand fly at 37,000 feet over the Rockies at four in the morning because that's just not, that's not exactly my good, my idea of a good time. Yeah.
0: Um, but no, that's <laughs> like that, it's, I mean, you bring up an interesting point, right? And that's what I love about this podcast, how I'm bringing so many different uh, aviators to it. I mean, we have a we have a corporate pilot and we have a cargo pilot. And what's that on the cargo side? You know, I think we kind of talked about it when we uh, over dinner last week, but why did you decide, you know what, cargo, I'm going to go into that? Like,
2: well, it's up to this point, I had done passenger. I had done uh, corporate essentially the whole time. And then I was, I still am. I still flight instruct, Um, but I'd never done cargo. Yeah. Um, It's just a whole nother world. if we're being honest, I took the job because it was, you know, hey, it was a great experience. Um, one that I'd never had before in, in many facets. And uh, I was going into something I, did, I didn't really know I was getting into. Um, so there's something I like about it
0: better than passenger. And there are some things that I um, do not like as much. But What know. are maybe some of the things you don't like as much? I mean, in general, I mean, if you fly a 767 for cargo operation or you fly it for, uh, American. I mean, you're still flying a seven, six, seven, flying the same aircraft, but what are maybe some of those things that you just don't like?
1: Uh, we like for
2: our operation in particular, you know, we're flying, um, on the, you know, well, again, this is most of cargo. You're flying on the backside of the clock. Yeah. So it's uh, a very shift work type of, of deal. So I'll spend 17 days of work or 15 days of work a month and forget the commuting aspect from Dallas to, to my base up in the North. Um, you have to get your body on a schedule where it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to sleep until 9 p.m., wake up at 9, Wake up at nine 9.15, and then I have a 10 p.m. hotel, shu- uh, the shuttle from the hotel to the airplane, yeah. and then we have an 11.30 departure, and we're going to fly L.A., Mexico City, sit on the ground for an hour and a half, unload and reload, go to Guadalajara, unload and reload, back to L.A., and you get back to Los Angeles at 9 in the morning. And then you somehow, with... You know, it's L.A. with traffic and people outside talking in the hallway and people, uh, you know, someone, construction worker doing a jackhammer on the street outside. You have to find a way to sleep. Yeah. You know, um, and that is contrary contrary to your body's normal circadian rhythm. Um, but then you go home for 12 days and now you have to be a normal normal person. human being. Yeah. Right. So it's ba- that back forth I really don't like.
0: So is your schedule going to change much now that you're going to the to the 280, or how are things going to change? I mean, you're probably going to be doing a little longer flights now, uh, in that type, but what, what do you expect, uh, flying that aircraft to be like now? Um, well, I mean,
1: I, I really never know my schedule. I don't know at all when I'm going places. I don't know where I'm going. Um, I've heard we do have some cool trips coming up, but you know, nothing's confirmed. And, uh, I don't really know until usually the night before. But uh, I do suspect that this plane's is going to be going, obviously, a lot, a lot further than the King Air would. Um, hopefully, we get some Atlantic stuff. Hopefully, we get some South America. That would be really cool to experience. Um, the international operations aspect would be sweet. And uh, I'm also really hoping that I get to fly the King Air as well.
0: <laughs> this is a funny thing. We talked about this last week over dinner. What is the age difference between you versus all the rest of the people in your, in your, no, and guys, no, like this is serious. I mean, this is what's so cool about Aaron and kind of his story. Like what is that age difference between you and most of your class, uh, you know uh, that's going through the same training
1: okay so there's me my uh, sim partner is 37 and uh, the rest all have gray hair oh, oh my
0: <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's insane i mean so okay so from your side i mean you're you're a young aviator as well what's mm-hmm. what's the average age on the cargo side that you're usually oh gosh
2: with? i mean well, it's still commercial it's still part 121 for anyone that's listening in the united states and, and know about 121 ops Um, I'm definitely one of the youngest guys there. I I don't know that I'm the youngest. Uh, I I turned 28 last week, Uh, but I'm certainly in the probably the bottom five youngest guys there. Um.
0: So what's that? uh, I mean, we had Sergio on a couple weeks ago. He's fairly young. I mean, what's that like being, you know, on types, flying with the older generation? Um, I mean, is it the same? Do they, you know, do they kind of expect the same? Is there any, you know different treatment. I mean, what's, what's that like being so younger, but I mean, that's what's so great, right. About this whole, (laughs) I don't know, people say pilot shortage or whatnot. Um, but you know, people are starting to move out and retire, Mm -hmm. but in the day to day job, what's it like interacting with all these people?
2: I would say most guys are pretty receptive and respectful of it. I wouldn't say that anyone has been, um, I mean, you always have bad apples in every bunch of course. Right. Um, but it's not like people talk down or are demeaning in any way because I'm younger. I think they get in the cockpit with you and within 10 minutes, they can figure out pretty quickly whether you know
0: what you're doing, or what not. you're
2: doing or not, yeah. you know, and they know you've been through training and you've been through IOE and you passed everything. And so at a minimum, you, you've got to, you know, I don't know, you know, oh, you passed something, how much credence that gives you, but, um, you know, it was a 121 check ride and, uh you know all the same call outs they do and everything in 121 world uh, and to a lesser extent in 135 world is standardized mm-hmm. um, so that you can get in there with that guy you've never met who may be 35 years older and you both are on the same page
0: the entire time from startup to shutdown. So so from your side, I mean, because you guys are a smaller operation, yeah. um, after you get done with your type rating, I mean, when you go back, <laughs> is there gonna be a, a, little, more, a little more training inside uh, the aircraft and getting kind of, kind of used to working with, like, a captain and everything?
1: Well, like, in my mind, I'm kind of always learning. Yeah. Uh, i kind of, I'm, I'm always in training. And, uh, well, right, because they say, yeah, you know, right. if you're
0: not, if you're, I mean, <laughs> we were talking about what I experienced last night, but, I mean, <laughs> if you're not learning something in aviation every single day while you're flying, I mean, you're probably doing something, you're doing something wrong, for yeah, sure.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely, I'd say. of a. Anyway slippery slope to have that attitude <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh no I know everything well there's people out there that think they do yeah
2: well again it's those people that what I say it's they don't know what they don't know yeah that's really the problem guys with uh, you can cop it up to inexperience or just having a big head but yeah, it's that's the people that
0: end up getting themselves in trouble and it, I mean do you think for the most part when ego gets in the way that's where mistakes are made yeah that's certainly a big
2: part of it yeah um, it's if you look at an accident chain, as an instructor, I've I've um, spent a lot of time looking at analyzing accidents and making my students, primary all the way up through um, prospective commercial guys, look at accidents. You know, learn from the mistakes of others, right? And you find that ego usually is a big part of it. A lot of time we call, a lot of times we say get their itis, but the the one common thread you find with accidents is that it's like a. Um, trying to align a bunch of Swiss cheese that have, have the holes in it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So so on <laughs> nine, nine days, or you know, excuse me, nine times out of 10, um, it may be fine to have that big ego because the weather's good and there's no mechanical anomalies. Uh, ATC didn't do anything funny to you that you didn't expect. Uh, and so the chains, as you call it, um, or the Swiss cheese model, whichever one you prefer to use, um, does not align in such a way that causes that accident. But on, a particular day, enough things go wrong, whether that's two links in the chain or 50, uh, at some point that'll be enough to quote unquote, complete the link and cause an accident. And ego is certainly a, a big part of it Yeah, you know, in this industry. And that's just kind of inherent to being a pilot. I think a lot of us have, have that type A
0: personality. So going through type training, I mean, you guys have kind of, you've obviously flown different aircraft and you've done your training in different places. What has been so far, I mean, for you, what has been the most fun thing because I mean if people don't realize I mean type training is not easy I mean it's a lot of work it's a lot of time uh, it's a lot of studying so what has been uh, a positive or fun thing that you've experienced so far in type training
1: Honestly, I, I actually, I think it's awesome. Uh, it really gives you an opportunity in the simulator to touch all those buttons that are like, you'd be scared to touch in the real airplane because, you know, you don't know what they're, what they're going to do. And that's kind of the, the whole thing. I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of actually understanding how all the systems in the airplane works.
0: What about you?
2: Uh, until I flew a 767, I'd never actually Done a Cat 3 B
0: approach ILS or ILS approach. Okay, so, so for the that's for fun. the young for the young people out there <laughs> that don't know what that is, explain to them what that is. Essentially,
2: it's an auto land. Uh, the seven thirty seven seven sixty seven uh, can land itself, um, not at every airport, not under every condition, but um, at the airports where that at the airports where where, yeah. where it is where the equipment supports it. The air the airplane, the airport. And the flight crew, both all three have to be certified um, to conduct a Cat 2 or a Cat 3 operation. So if anyone out there doesn't know what that is, um, um, if you look into um, like an instrument flying handbook, you read up on ILSs, there's, the standard ILS is half mile and 200 over, right? It's Cat 1, we call it. Um, and that's kind of the, the golden standard to what everyone trains to in a Cessna when yeah. they're getting there, getting their, working on their instrument. Uh, beyond that, you have decision heights that are lower for a Cat 2, such as like 50 feet, or for Cat 3, there is no decision height. It's, we call it an alert height. Um, In the airplane, we just either have a HUD in some aircraft, which we do not in 7.6, so it cannot, we can't hand fly. It has to be a, what's called a coupled approach where the autopilot does it. Um, we have three autopilots, and so when you go into that approach mode, the airplane does a lot of cool, fancy stuff to protect itself. And there's, in the event that there is any failure, the electrical system goes into what we call triple isolation. Um, and again, it's just to it's, it's having that multiple level of redundancy, doing something that is so um, that would otherwise be kind of dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and coming down, and airplane just decides it's going to flare for you, and it'll roll out, bring the throttles back for you, uh, and all you have to do is go into reverse and at 80 knots or below 80 knots we apply
0: manual braking <laughs> but the 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 Gulfstream does a lot of you were you were telling us that i mean it does a lot of the same type of thing as well right yeah so i mean it's it's
1: in my mind extremely uh it's extremely automated and it, the, the systems that it has is absolutely fantastic so i mean yeah it'll it'll fly all the way down um and like at 50 feet the, the auto throttles will just retire and, and you don't actually really have to um flare because once you get down to the the level where you would flare, the um the wing creates a good ground effect and it kind of just cushions the landing. So I mean, you can do a little bit of a flare if you want, but it fully just lands itself. And then once you land, you have the auto braking.
0: So I mean, it's really a it's really cool. Maybe they need to do that on the Cessna. I mean <laughs> really, <I could laughs> really use some you know auto <clears throat> landing at some point. No kidding. Um, okay, but there's one question that I've noticed through some some podcasts where it's just kind of a guest and I um, a question has been brought up and it's an interesting one. And I don't know why keep people keep asking it, but uh, and it comes from a lot of international folks is people are going through training and then they ask the question of, would it be smarter to get some type of type training before I get hired or wait to get hired, then get the, the type training, you know, from the company. What's your yeah, opinion?
1: Yeah. So I actually get messages like that all the time yeah. on, uh, on Instagram, people asking, you know, what type should I get? Um, to get the best job. And I, I'm just thinking, uh, I'm coming at it from the Canadian perspective and I believe uh, that the American is very similar where you don't really pay for your own type rating. You, you get hired at a company to work for a certain uh, plane or to work on a certain plane and they will they will get your type rating. Whereas apparently in Europe and, and Asia and India, it's actually very common to um, pick, you know, some plane that you want, pay for your own type rating for it and then apply for uh, a job as a first or second officer fully qualified on the aircraft. So, I mean, I think it really depends on what region you're coming from.
0: What's your take? Yeah, same thing. Same thing.
1: Don't get me fired up on it, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the standard is. No, I want to. Yeah, I don't I don't let's get you, uh,
0: I let's don't, get you fired I don't, up I don't know what
2: the standard is in other countries, so I can't necessarily speak to what people do or do not do over there, and I don't want to give off the perception that I'm trying to, you know, um, slam somebody for what they, for what they have done or what they were thinking about doing. Yeah. Because um, again, I can only speak to the United States, having given my experience here as an aviator my entire life. Um, but it kind of goes along the same lines of people who get a fresh flight instructor certificate or a fresh commercial. And even in this industry where it is, you know, some people say, quote unquote, it's a pilot's market, um, they are hurting for hours and they are so eager to, to not have to pay for hours anymore as they had been doing up yeah. till that point um, that they will just run off and take the first bidder, if you will, or the, the lowest paying job, um, or they'll take the a job where it doesn't pay them anything. Because, you know, in the past, certainly, I think it's far less common nowadays, um, but even up to, call it 10 years ago, um, people would uh, fly for free, if you will. Like, they have a commercial multi, and they just got, the, they spent all this money and this time working to that point in their lives, and now they have some operator... Uh, or someone who needs a right seater will say, "All right, well, uh, I'm not going to pay you, but you can come sit right seat, or or add insult to injury, you can pay me to sit right seat in my airplane."
0: Well, not only that, That's but ridiculous. Some uh, depending on you know how the um, the operations are, right. you would some people would get into a job and think they'd be sitting right seat, gaining hours, right? But that operation was not actually counting the second right, right. time.
2: Yeah, like for example, if you're flying again, the U.S. rules. If you're flying a citation, uh, um, some of the older ones perhaps uh, that don't require a right seater for like a part 91 uh, independent owner Um, a lot of people will say hey you know my owner just wants to have a right a second pilot in that right seat because it makes them feel better about having a second pilot Um, you may not know anything about the airplane you're just over there doing frequency changes uh, working the radios flipping the gear flipping the flaps but uh, but they want to have a right seater but we're not going to pay or or whatever Um, that's not really okay in my opinion it never has been I certainly agree I'm not saying that everyone is entitled to a, a fairy tale unicorn job when they get a wet commercial uh, but be paid what you're worth I mean if that's a hundred dollars a day um, do something that is commensurate with your level of experience and be compensated accordingly so that's yeah. that's that's what my opinion is i'm not I'm not saying that um, you know you should get a wet commercial multi and try to find
0: something that pays you a thousand dollars a day that's that's not going to happen either yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs>
0: Uh, well, yeah, because I think there's you know there's there's some young kids out there that are, I mean, they're looking at the aviation field and the right. opportunities that present itself. Uh, but some of those opportunities, I mean, you really have to grind your teeth, right. cut them, and sure. I mean, it takes a long time to, at, it's not an overnight thing. Right.
2: right. And, <laughs> and, and, and make no mistake, I certainly, you know, I fly distracted, I flew aerial tour flights in the Texas heat in July. Flying people around, even at six in the evening when it, it's still uh, ninety-seven degrees out and in Celsius, what is that thirty-eight? So, you're complaining about this, and I'm complaining. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just saying. You know, I flew Cessnas around downtown Dallas. That's how I earned a lot of my hours
0: on top of flight instructing. Yeah, yeah. uh, Come back here in mid-July, and we'll show you what the heck yeah, hot is. Yeah, be here in July. <laughs> Come to Winnipeg
1: in uh, January. Oh heck no! <laughs>
0: heck no! <huh? laughs> Yeah. I gotten so, lived, lived in the Midwest. I'm not. Doing that
1: <laughs> so so anyway, you know, I, I
2: certainly I had my fair share of uh, you know, quote-unquote paying my dues, if you will. Um but you know, again, I was I was paid what was what was it, $30 a flight or something. Uh, well, it was I considered to be a very fair wage. Yeah. Um given what I was doing. Uh so, but to answer your question in short, I know I'm long-winded, but to answer your question in short, no, it is not normal in the United States to pay for your own type. Certainly not today.
0: Certainly not in 2019. Well, and you'd hate too. I mean, you'd go and invest all that money in a type rating and then get nothing out of it too. Right.
2: Yeah. The the other thing I could tell you is that it's like, um, you know, so I I have a 7.6 type. Great. That's wonderful. People look at me and they say, oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's so awesome. Lucky you, whatever. I, uh, and I I say, yeah, you know, I'm really fortunate to have had, uh, to have gotten hired um, doing what I'm doing. But if I were to quit tomorrow, I have, since September, um, you know, because a lot of that was, again, training. I didn't get out on the line until, you know, mid-December. Um, I've got, what, 120 hours, 150 hours in a 767? In so that's great, but any other employers would say, well, it's not really a lot of time in the aircraft. Yeah. So just because you have a type, don't be misled to think, okay, now I'm, now I'm golden. That's, that's not true. A, t- a type with no time and no experience um, is not worth too, too much.
0: So, so, kind of ending off this whole this whole topic of type ratings. You know, for you, you um, know, I mean, actually, for both of you, I mean, being young, for somebody who's coming out, you know, has a commercial, maybe have gotten their first job, but they haven't gone to type school yet, uh, but type school is on their horizon. You know, what's some advice that you would give to them going into their their first type training?
1: Um, okay, so. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm coming to this as a very, very new inexperienced pilot, but my first type rating, I went there with 200 hours, I just had my commercial. And uh, mm-hmm. more so than the aircraft, I struggled with actual just hard mm-hmm. IFR knowledge. Um, just because when you're doing your instrument rating, you're only going up to 3000 feet is all simulated. Whereas, uh, in the type rating, they instantly expect you to be, you know, a proficient pilot. And, uh, so my type school for me, at least my, when I was doing my King Air, wasn't, wasn't just learning how to fly a new aircraft. It was actually learning how to fly a new aircraft in an IFR environment, environment. I can't even talk, <laughs> uh, <laughs> high altitude, you know, something like that. So just, um, if you're, if you have the same situation, as me like really, uh, you know, look over those IFR procedures and and try and become proficient at least a little bit in that. And if you know what plane you're going to be going on, study the limitations, study the systems, go in there
0: prepared because it's uh, it's a lot. So maybe going through training, okay, you've, you know, you heed your advice, uh, you know, they study up on that prior to going in while they're in type training. Maybe what are some of the things to watch out for in uh, some advice maybe going through the school?
1: Uh, you got to take a break. like check out things to do in the local area, you know, like good bars to go to, restaurants, you know, whatever. Like you can't just be on, on, on all the time. Yeah. And burn yourself out. So just always have a good time in life.
0: What about That's you? It. Some of your advice from, for, you know, maybe younger kids thinking about type school or about going into, type, you know, what's that advice that you want, want to give them going into the training? <laughs>
1: Uh,
2: so when you first start flight training, I would say no matter what you're flying, um, start making, start getting into the habit of flows, start getting into the habit of doing things, um, in a standardized fashion. And I understand that may be difficult. you are flying around a 172 or a Piper, whatever. Um, but going through a type rating and f- when you start flying bigger stuff, um, you'll find that everything is standardized. And that's the reason in part that, that, uh, charter and commercial aviation is so safe is because we don't do things off the cuff or fly by the seat of our pants, if you will. Uh, everything is standardized. And even if there's an emergency, there's a book for that. There's a checklist for that. We don't guess, we don't memorize stuff, Oh, we do memorize stuff, excuse me, but we don't memorize stuff when it comes to, to um, crunch time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so if you can get down, okay, a good example I'll give you is, you know, a new student who's going through instrument, Come up with, and and talk to your instructor about this, your CFII or CFI, but um, you know, you should get to a point where, all right, one mile prior to the final approach fix, I'm gonna go flaps one, gear down. Or final approach fix, gear down. Or whatever it is, come up with it and and adhere to that like the law. Um, Because that will form good habits so that when you do get to type school, you won't be struggling with not only memorizing limitations and trying to learn a new freaking airplane um, that is far more complicated than anything you've probably flown up to that point, you also, when you, when you go to, to learn their profiles, um, if you're flying for a, a certain company, uh, they make you memorize these profiles. So when you learn those profiles, you'll be, your brain will be used to saying, okay, this point, this, this point, that, cause that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. You know? So maybe, uh, you know, some of the advice that you learned going through some type school, like during training, mm-hmm. you know, what were some things looking back? You're like, ah, oh, maybe I should have done that. Or, you know, uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> have done that kind of thing. You know, just looking back on your previous trainings, um,
2: you know, I I think a first type, it's difficult. It's it's hard to sift through. There's a lot of information. We call it the fire hose effect. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really hard to sift through what's important and when, and when is when other things are not as important. Um, it, it's like just trying to it's trying to eat a big bite of steak all at once. It's way better to chop it up into little pieces and, yeah. and take more bites. Um, so I wish I would have done more of that my first type. I think by the time I got to seven six seven, I. I was, I remembered enough from the Gulfstream and then enough, again, like I said, Pilatus wasn't typed, but we still had standardization stuff. So between those two things, um, I think I did okay, or I'd like to think I did okay. I didn't, didn't fail my check ride. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but you know, uh, it's all about, like I said, learning your airplane, um, private pilot students would hate this, but it would imagine trying to go for your first, um, first lesson. And instead of going flying, the instructor said, all right, for the first two weeks, we're gonna do nothing but sit here and learn about all the flight controls and learn about, learn everything all about this Cessna and pressures and temperatures and stuff that you probably don't need to know about a Cessna. Yeah. Um, but that would be kind of the equivalent. That's what a type rating is. It's not, they're not teaching you how to fly again. Kind of what, what Aaron said is you need to already come in with instrument knowledge. It's by the time you get to that, the big leagues, so to speak, you're not, no one's going to sit there and teach you how to read an approach plate. Yeah. You need to know that. Whether it's Jeppesen or the, the NACO, the, the government plates here in the United States, you should know both.
1: And, and you know, on that, on that note, actually, another thing that I was just thinking about is uh, for a lot of people coming into a type, it's your first time in a two crew environment. Yeah. And, uh, and so maybe if you don't know how to interpret and approach plate the best, you know, you need to be able to communicate and CRM and, and work as a team now instead of just kind of doing everything yourself. Right. Right. A lot of
2: people do. We actually had a couple guys in my 7-6 my class, they've been flying single pile citation stuff and they had a really, really tough time. Because you have to be used to talking to the other guy and not doing everything yourself. Yeah. You know, you're, if, you, if you try to move your flaps, if you're the pilot flying and you move your own flaps or gear,
0: you're going to get your hand slapped. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> um, so <laughs> learning, ba- you know, what I'm taking is learning <laughs> to communicate is a big deal then. Huge. Like yeah, just absolutely. like how we're doing like right now, being able right. To yeah. commu- but it's even more important in the uh, in the cockpit. Right. Yeah. Right. The,
2: the, the other thing I'll add too, to guys too for type training, and Aaron can probably echo this, is... And I think it does a disservice to you as a pilot, unfortunately, but there's really no way around it. Um, I understand why this type type training is set up the way it is, but in type training, you go through and do all these emergencies and V1 cuts and stuff that you, guys go through their entire pilot career and will never have happened to them. Yeah. They do it in training, but that's it. You never do it in the real airplane. It's always done in this, um, albeit very realistic, simulator. Um, but when you get out in the real world, you know, air traffic control and weather, there's curveballs that you know are way different stuff that you haven't experienced in a sim that is a confined environment when you're, you're the, literally the only airplane in the simulator yep. um, and you've been taught all right i'm gonna turn base flaps one speed this flaps five speed that well when you get out in the in the real world when dfw approach says maintain you know 220 knots or greater until this point and you're like well crap i'm used to dirtying up if you will or putting flaps and gear out here nia can't do that it's yep. too fast um, or they want you to slow down but now you have to do this early and there's a lot of little curveballs like that where you're going into LA and they keep you high over terrain uh, and then they dump you down really quick or they take you off on an arrival and then put you back on the approach and you're switching autopilot modes the the simulator does not adequately prepare you for that that is not the real world that's what that's what IOE is for um, but so if you go through type training, take that with a grain of salt, that everything you're doing in there is to learn the airplane, it's to, to experience things under the worst possible circumstances, things that you, you hope
0: and probably will never deal with, um, but that that is not real world flying by any measure. Yeah, I mean, I just experienced that last night as I was coming in uh, to my airport, I was listening on approach uh, with flight following and some, there was a lady uh, on approach, she was telling an American flight to slow down. Mm-hmm. like you know, slow down to 200 knots or something like that. Right. She had to say it three times. She's like, slow <laughs> down to 200 <laughs> knots, uh, American blank, 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 right. blank, blank. So, I mean, this happens even to the, I mean, to the guys who have been obviously flying for right. a super long time. Right. So, yeah. right. um, the one last thing I want, so we've kind of hit everything about, you know, type, what to expect, kind of the fun things, kind of the, the learning, uh, the learning curves that you have to have. But the last thing I want to touch on, and I love touching on this with any, you know, young aviator is the state of the industry for, you know, young individuals like ourselves. And I love how you're from Canada. I love how you're from the United States. We can kind of put the opinions together. So at least in your country, in Canada, what's the state of the union uh, in aviation for young aviators?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great time to be in right now. There's a lot of retirements coming up. And, uh, and that means that a lot of people are going to be getting flying jobs directly out of school, because uh, in Canada, we have this Kind of culture where you know before you get you know the privilege of sitting in an aircraft, a lot of operators will will have um, you know qualified pilot candidates work on the ramp or work on dispatch for you know anywhere from like six months to I've heard like two years and everything. So that's becoming you know less and less common, and I think that's great for our profession because we're we're qualified to fly an airplane, not to dispatch an airplane. And and uh, in, in many cases because they're in such remote locations, um, it's hard to get you know people that aren't so eager to get into a cockpit to work these jobs. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean I think as as it becomes more and more common to get into uh, direct flying jobs and more and more people are retiring. There's going to be a lot of movement and it's, it's really a great time to be in aviation.
0: So maybe somebody, you know, to kind of to kind of wrap everything up from your opinion, you know, somebody thinking about going into aviation, thinking about three years down the line, you know, I'd love to, to get some type of type training. What is the advice that you could give somebody now, um, you know, that could help them three years from now? As someone who's already flying, uh, no, somebody new, somebody new in aviation. Somebody you know, new who wants a type rating, well, like literally, yeah. literally starting from zero, looking ahead three years from now. Uh, All right, well, I mean,
1: it's the kind of the, the, the same as always. Before you really jump, you know, feet first, into they like, say go for a uh, discovery flight, and if you like the discovery flight, and and keep keep going, get with it, and uh, you know, the more you like it, the the more that you'll be able to become more proficient. And um, as Brandon was saying, you know, just Try and try and get uh, systems going early on in your training and uh, really solidify that and it'll really help a lot with your type training when it comes to that time.
0: Okay, so State yeah. of the Union here in the United States for you know the younger generation of aviators, what's your opinion? Well, first off,
2: it's it's a good time to be a pilot. It's probably better now, maybe some of the, the older guys that are involved listening to this uh, would agree with me. Uh, it's a good time to be involved. Um, a lot of the stuff, we kind of talked about it earlier when I was talking about guys, uh, Trying, trying to earn hours to fly for free mm-hmm. and such. Uh, but uh, that world is kind of gone, um, essentially. It's not, uh, it's no longer that way. Pilots are, it's all about supply and demand, right? It's basic economics 101. Um, the, the demand is there and, Um, if you talk, depends on who you talk to the supply is not, um, you know, some guys say it's a pay shortage. Other guys will say, well, no, it's actually a pilot shortage. One thing is undeniable though, is that if you look, uh, at stats for the major airlines and I say major as in passenger or cargo, um, there are a lot of guys in the next five to 10 years who will be retiring in droves. Um, I, without looking at the numbers in front of me, I would be willing to bet that more, more retirements in the next five to 10 years than we've ever seen before. It's, oh, it's yeah. historic. Um, so everyone's kind of bracing for that, if you will. They're, they're, they're bracing for the impact. Um, what the impact will actually be, I, I think that's yet to be told. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, just like anyone else, we can all sit here and conjecture. We can all sit here and guess. Um, but QOL and pay are certainly better today than they have been in the past. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, and that's whether you work for a regional airline uh, or a cargo. Um, I mean, even the corporate side is starting to feel this a little <laughs> bit. They don't have quite the same issues as 121 world due to the mandatory 65, um, 65 year old retirement that, that 121 has, uh, but they're going to feel it and they have I was been. to say,
0: cause people are still leaving corporate to go sure. to, the, yeah. to the majors. Right.
2: Well, and, and, and we can get into this big in-depth discussion as corporate versus majors. And, um, You know, pay and QOL. Some guys prefer corporate, some prefer majors. I'm not going to try to steer someone one way or the other. It's all personal preference. It's all personal preference. Um, You know, I have my views and I have my reasons, Um, but. Uh, but I will say it's a, it's a good time to be an aviator. The one caution I'll give is I, I as an, and this is the instructor in me, um, I really like it when people learn uh, to learn, not just to zip through their ratings. There are schools out there, and I'm not going to name or disparage anybody or any one place, but there are places out there that will offer you, hey, we'll pay us 65000 or 75000 or $80,000. Um, or th- That's what it'll cost you. But we'll get you from zero to hero, i.e. zero to commercial multi or zero to MEI in one year and just make sure you are going to do one of those programs. And I understand why some people do, but if you are, make sure you do your homework. Yep. Um, you know, don't just believe what they tell you, go and and do your independent research, talk to people who have done it, who've been around for a long time. Uh, just make sure you know what you're getting yourself into
0: both financially and, and in terms of time commitment. Because I mean, at the end of the day, those, organizations are still businesses, they're still in this to make money, Correct, uh, and they're still selling you a product, and you as a consumer need to be aware of what they're actually selling you.
2: Well, and they also know, they also know, um, just like everyone does, that that in aviation seniority, uh, certainly on 121 World, uh, seniority is everything. So they know that the clock is ticking and the sooner you get in and get yourself into a regional airline or the sooner you get to a major airline um, the higher your seniority will be the better your qol will be sooner right so that's what everyone's kind of shooting for yep. and so they try to capitalize on that by offering fast 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 but what the, the last thing i would want to see or hear about is someone who went through one of these programs got very very superficial or surface level knowledge just enough to pass to pass excuse me pass the check ride Uh, and then did something stupid um, due to lack of experience or lack of of actual knowledge, you know, get themselves violated, and now you've got something on your FAA record that isn't going to go away, and now you have to speak to it to any interview in the future. Yeah. You know, so don't do something stupid just for the sake of time. Try to, you know, sometimes it's it's better to slow down and, um, you know, and actually learn stuff instead of trying to zip through.
0: Do you agree with that as well? No,
1: um, not really, because, you know, I, I, I kind of went to a program like that and, uh, what I found is, you know, it really, it's really up to you, personal mindset and, and how each person, um, you know, to basically, I kind of, I'm kind of like forming like my thoughts here, but so, <laughs> yeah, so but, I, I, I yeah. think
0: I know where you're going, but, yeah. I, and I think he touched on it. It's, it's, if you have the right mindset sure. and you're willing to, cause I don't think the programs are bad. If you know what yeah. you're just getting mm-hmm. yourself into, uh, and you're willing to put in the work and the understanding behind it and you know.
1: And I think it's frequency of exposure is kind of what I was getting to. You know, if you do, if you learn how to fly part time, you're doing a lot of relearning. Um, At least that's Mm -hmm. what I've heard. You know, if you only take a flight lesson once a week, you know, you're relearning the last flight lesson every time. Whereas if you do one of these programs and you're flying every day or every second day, it's really always continually building. And, you know, 200 hours or 250 hours in the States is really not all that much. And I think it's really doable as long as you approach it full time and, you know, you go full Mm -hmm. into it and, and really try and prepare. And it's what you actually want. Yeah, right. So... I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with, with learning, you know, relatively quickly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, it depends on the program certainly. And it depends, you're right, on your personal mindset. Um, but like my, my big point there is I want people to do their homework on whatever program it may be. I don't know what you went through Aaron, um, up there. Um, but you know, I I think down here, maybe in the U S that sort of stuff is done on more of a mass scale. Um,
0: and they, we'll they- call it like a pilot, like a pilot mill. mill or a pilot yeah. factory. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. right. You know, like just pumping yeah. out people 10 a day or so, something like that.
2: No, and you're right. Yeah, proficiency is everything. I'm not, I'm certainly not advocating that somebody take 10 years to get a private. That's not, you know, I don't, don't want that, my words to be misconstrued to think that I'm saying, do it slow. Um, but there is no, I just don't want people to rush something for the sake of it. And, and not truly, when you're not truly prepared to move on, don't do that. Don't try to, you're doing yourself a disservice, you know, or don't be, Pressured into doing so by your school because you're paying them for a service, you are their client.
0: Yeah, because I and so, I think and I don't know how much different it is, you know, up in Canada than it is here. I mean, there's been a lot of schools that get in a lot of trouble for taking people's money, trying to pump them through, right. and then you as a consumer are actually the one that gets screwed, and you could be screwed for a really, really long time, right. especially if you took out things like loans and other right. things. Um, and then it just sets you up for you're almost setting yourself up for failure, right, in, right. in that situation. So. Um, all right. One last thing. What do you guys want to leave with uh, the audience out there? Any tips? Any advice? Uh, I don't know. Something you've learned in type training. I mean, I don't care what it is. What do you want to leave the audience uh, when, as we wrap this podcast up? Jeez,
1: you're up there. Uh, you're up, Brandon. I got to think about this. I'm up? Yeah. God, I
2: have to think too, man.
1: Uh, I mean it, I don't
2: know. It's, this is your podcast, though, man. Do you, do you want... What kind of direction do you want? Do you want type advice? Do you want um, general aviator advice? And both.
0: Let's, let's call it both. Yeah, type advice. Uh, one piece of type advice and what piece of general aviation advice?
2: Okay, um, type advice. Um, I'll say you first type when you're in ground school, make sure you study ahead of time, study your systems as much as ahead of time, and don't try to bog yourself down with the flows because that stuff is for sim, and you've probably got three to four weeks before you hit that. So study that ahead of time as well, But, but don't, again, only bite off as much as you can choose. So as far as type goes, Ground school is all about your knowledge. You're going to be taking written tests. Um, if it, it, it's harder um, and it takes longer if you work for an operator, uh, if when you go somewhere like flight safety for corporate, they have to teach you the aircraft, but they're not going to be teaching you SOPs for your company because that they assume is done. Of course. Of course, with your yeah. company back home versus if you get hired on with a 121 carrier or a 135 charter op here in the United States um, and you go through their, their first week is in-doc. You know, it's all about, all right, here we do this, here we do not do that. Um, because their op specs, if you will, are, are tailored to their company. Um, so focus on that your first few weeks. Focus on your op specs. Focus on your, that operation. Uh, and then worry about okay, flows. This, in the sim, when I have a V1, you know, altitude to hold, auto throttle alarm switch off, speed clean maneuvering. You kind of go through that whole rigmarole. Um, and then I guess as an aviator, uh, God, that's a hard one. I don't know. I'm trying to think through all my years of, of coming up through everything. Um, if you're trying to learn, I guess, my opinion uh, is that you learn best by teaching something. Yeah. And again, I'm biased because I'm an instructor and, and I actually enjoy instructing. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't, but, um, and not everyone's cut out to be an instructor. So it may not be for you. I'm yep. not saying you have to do it, but um, if you want to earn time quickly uh, and if you do have an affinity for instruction or you even like teaching people a little bit, uh, it's not a bad thing to do because you will find yourself flying with people, even when you're not in an instructional environment. <laughs> from now on, oh yeah, you'll find you'll you'll catch stuff that you otherwise would not have caught and you'll fly with somebody. And within 10 minutes, maybe even before you leave the ground, you'll know, OK, this this guy's with it or this girl's with it. You know, it's not you kind of develop a sixth sense, if you will. So that's, that's kind of my journal
0: aviation advice. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of weird. Cause that, that advice is when I, when I fly with my wife, I mean in little planes, she's, she's not deathly afraid, but she doesn't enjoy flying with it. Mm-hmm. And she enjoys when I go through everything and I go through the processes and all the steps and it's kind of a nuisance for me, but I've realized like, Oh shit, this is kind of nice. Like, having to go through my whole checklist, make sure I don't miss a darn thing, say it out loud and go through it all. And she's sitting there following along and literally watching me on my iPad as I'm Mm -hmm. going through the checklist just to make sure I didn't forget anything. Uh, And it's helping me learn just a little bit better. So I agree with that. All right, now up to you. Um,
1: All right, so going for type training, I I just like to restress what Brandon was talking about. Um, Whereas, you know, preparation beforehand is really key to this. Um, Because, you know, the more you know before, uh, if you know all your systems when you're in ground training, you're, you know You're kind of like when the instructor reiterates what you already know You're kind of just solidifying that knowledge in your head and it's going to prepare you like tenfold when you're actually in your simulator sessions Because now you're going to know exactly how the systems are working So when a failure happens, you know, you, you know what you lose, you know, what you have you don't have you know your tools to work with and it's uh It's, it's gonna be a lot easier of a process if you, if you come at it that way and then um, I guess just general as an aviator, I would say um, this isn't just about flying or anything, but I'd say, you know, first impressions are, are really key. And uh, you were saying a lot of your, your audience are, are younger or like newer pilots or whatever. And I think a big thing is like first impressions are so key with, you know, how you um, come out with yourself and how you, how you talk to people and interact with people. You always want to be professional and, and give everyone your best self because it's a really small world. Um, yeah. Pilots always say it and, you know, you always hear aviation is a really small world. Yeah. And corporate aviation is even smaller. You know, you don't want to develop the wrong reputation because um, <laughs> a reputation is usually a job so. it's crazy <laughs> yeah. like
0: how small it is like yeah. from the helicopter side it's really small but then I'm like oh you know fixed wing it's a lot bigger community it is still small no, it's yes. like I, crazy absolutely. I
2: can tell you story after story of guys I've, I've met guys at a gate in O'Hare and we're both in uniform we get chatting and within five minutes we're not intentionally doing this. It's just you start talking about somebody that you both knew and, oh yeah, they got remarried and this and that. And you've never met this person before in your life. And yeah. you're at an airport across the country that <laughs> neither, you don't, neither <laughs> of you lives there. Yeah. And like, yeah. you're just, yeah. you happen to cross yeah. paths. And I think, don't quote me on these numbers. So someone's going to, you know, say cry foul and say that I'm wrong, but fine. But, uh, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood last I checked, at least for the United States. Um, the F- FAA says there's like, maybe 600,000 active pilots, but that includes student pilots, that includes uh, rotorcraft. that's fixed wing. So 600,000 out of a population of what are we now? 328 million. So right there, it's already a very, very small sect of the population. And then when you further divide that into people who do it for a living, whether that is corporate or commercial, it's an incredibly, I think the number, the fraction works out to be like one out of 5,000 or something, it's some crazy number. So it's it's like being in a tiny little frat, in a sense, like... Yeah, I mean, it's know, it, it's
0: like less than 1% of the population has a private pilot's license. Yeah. And then it's like 50, I don't know, something like 50% of that 1% right. is like past the instrument and, and right. everything else. And it's like, man, that is a tiny, tiny right. community. I mean, is that the same in Canada too? Is it even smaller? Well, yeah, I mean, we're like a tenth the size of yeah. you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I guess using those numbers, we're probably like, what,
1: 60,000 maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So is it, I mean, is it a pretty tight knit community up there too?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. It's really small.
0: Have you been to Yellowknife? Not yet. I I want to go too. I've always had that. Sorry. It's just, I'm like, okay, small community, (laughs) Canada. I'm like, man, Yellowknife, it's cold as heck up there right now. Yeah. yeah, No, it's it's kind of always cold as heck up in Yellowknife. It'd be cool to go though. Yeah, I can't, I can't do that. All right. Well, (laughs) any last parting thoughts for the podcast, the listeners, where, uh, how about this? Aaron, where can people find you on social? Sure, uh, it's
1: uh, Instagram at ThePilotAaron, or YouTube actually. I got YouTube at ThePilotAaron too. I haven't really been using it as well as I thought I would, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of projects in the works there, so hopefully I'll get some more videos up soon. You put like, you, you did that first vlog, and I was like, oh yes,
0: he's gonna put out more uh, vlogs yeah. and everything. I've got, I've
1: got <laughs> I have two open projects for other vlogs, I just haven't finished them. I just, I, want, I want my stuff to come out good, and it's kind of like, a, paralysis by analysis
0: or whatever they call yeah. it. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you're on the Instagram and social media as yeah. well. Where you can follow me. It's
2: bgmoso 28 on Instagram or uh, on Facebook I have a page called Brandon CFI, CFII, MEI. So you can just follow
0: that. Like a little um, Facebook group for you know students and stuff? It's a little or? Facebook
2: page for me and I'm pretty bad about actually posting to it. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> once every like six months or something. I just kind of forget about it. I have yeah. it linked. But... um but you can still send me messages and stuff on there, uh, or of course I have the, the professional LinkedIn. You're always welcome uh, to add me on that. Yeah. So. Do you,
0: have a, do you have a LinkedIn, Aaron?
1: Uh, I guess so. I mean, yeah. I don't know <laughs> it ever. Yeah. probably
0: still says I'm a bartender in Australia. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna bring back the cockpit selfie when you when you get back into the uh, the 280?
1: I mean, I, I at least got to get one.
0: Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to move away from that, but we'll see. Hey, that's what made yeah. you big. I love it. All right, everybody. Well, that brings pretty much uh, a wrap up to the podcast this week. I just want to appreciate, you know, I appreciate you, Aaron, for uh, for coming down to DFW. Uh, you know, I know it's part of your training, but it's always good to see uh, new faces down here. Brandon, thank you so much no for problem. joining along uh, with us, and hopefully down the line, you know, we get all of us can get back together, have a podcast. Yeah. I don't know six months down the line or something. Maybe you'll be yeah. back for training a new type. in yeah. six <laughs> months. <laughs> we'll i will see. Know, maybe maybe you'll be coming you'll yeah. be like 500 hours coming down and yeah. do 7. G- yeah. Yeah. 747 <laughs> g6 g650 uh Jeez. er uh yeah. er yeah. train or whatnot but no both of you uh, thank you so much for uh being a part of the podcast today talking about type training because i mean that's something i don't have too much experience with uh yeah, you know, I know a little bit about the uh, the helicopter side and whatnot, but not too much about the fixed wing side. So I appreciate you guys' course uh, your insight just for me and the audience as well. But for everybody else uh, listening to the podcast, if you guys enjoyed today's episode, make sure you go over to iTunes, give the podcast a rating. Uh, I don't know, leave a comment what you thought about Brandon or Aaron. I don't know, be nice. <laughs> don't say don't say anything mean. Uh, we appreciate the five star reviews. We appreciate the good comments because your comments. Are uh how we build the content around this podcast so make sure you go uh leave the rating uh, after today's episode so thank you again for listening and we will see you next time on the next episode of ab geek chronicles see ya